Okay, you good? Okay. So, yeah, my, my name is Hunter, if you can just tell that. Um, so it's my joy to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm actually one of the lay elders here. Um, so normally TL or Jimmy is up here, but today um, I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to us. So we're going to be finishing out chapter 7 today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and flip there to verse 31. We're going to be in the last seven verses of that chapter. Um, so while I, I was preparing this, I was reminded of a really interesting hobby I once learned about uh, that Thomas Jefferson had. So most of you know who Thomas Jefferson is, and you know that he was the principal author of um, the Declaration of Independence, and you know that he was a very good third president of the U.S. Um, but something that not as many people are aware of is that he actually made his own Bible. Um, he didn't write it. Uh, actually, what he did um, towards the end of his life, he, he would stay up late at night with a New Testament and a razor blade, and he would comb through page after page and cut out little sections. Um, and so by the time he was done, he had a, an 84-page collage, basically, of some of the New Testament, and he titled it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So he referred to this collection as um, diamonds pulled from a dunghill, because whereas it was the life and the morals of Jesus, it, it completely left out and neglected all of the supernatural, all of the divine, all of the miracles that we see in the New Testament. He didn't see the, perfect, or the purpose for them at all. Um, and so he, he made his own little Bible that he thought was sufficient. So some of you may wonder the same thing. Why do we have miracles in the New Testament? Why do we talk about them all the time? Why are they everywhere when we read through Scripture? And I'm here to tell you that they do, in fact, have a point. It's called divine validation. So a few chapters ago in uh, Mark 2, um, we saw and we read about this man who was lowered through the ceiling to Jesus. And at first, Jesus saw him. He was crippled, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. But when some of those present began to question in their hearts whether he actually had the authority to do that, whether could he actually do that, who is he? he? He rebuked them, and he responded by saying, so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, I say to you, rise and walk. See, the physical miracle was meant to serve as the authentication of the unseen miracle, the forgiveness of sins. Only God can forgive sin, and only God can raise the lame to walk. So Mark opens his gospel with this pretty amazing claim. He says, this is the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. He's saying Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God, and this is good news. And now for seven chapters we've been reading, uh, Mark has presented us with scene after scene of these amazing things that just kind of blow our minds. You know, people being raised from the dead, miraculous healings, and every single one of them has been for the same purpose, so that you know who Christ is, so that you know He is the Son of God, and He does have the authority. You see, Jefferson thought he could understand who Jesus was apart from the miracles, but it's actually through them we most clearly see who Jesus is. And our miracle today is no different. And so if you pull nothing else, this is what I want you to see from our miracle today, that Jesus is the Son of God, and He has come to open the way of salvation for all people. Okay, so if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and join me in verse 31 as we read together. Okay, starting in verse 31. Then He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to Him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. 
And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd, privately he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Father, I, I pray that you would open up this text to us and you would, you would show us who Christ is. Um, or that we would have our own understandings, own understandings expanded, that we would see Christ as not just some man, we would not see him as just a good person, we would, we would see him as the Son of God, or that you would show us the manifest glories of, of Christ in this, this passage and show us our need for him, that just like that song we sang, all we have is Christ. God, please make known these things to us in this passage, I, I pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we um, read about the Syrophoenician woman, how Jesus healed uh, her daughter. And so this took place in Tyre, which is a city about 30 miles northwest of Galilee. Um, so it's outside of kind of the predominant Jewish area. And so in verse 31 here, we read, we get our setting, he says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, that is, in the region of the Decapolis. So there's still... Um, on the move. They're still traveling outside of the predominantly Jewish areas. Um, so Decapolis, the place where they are now, literally means ten cities. So it's this area um, that was settled and um, founded kind of during the Greek conquest of Alexander the Great. And so it's a lot of Greek cities. And then about a hundred years prior to this, during the Roman conquest, um, the Roman general Pompey came through and then this federation of ten cities was set up kind of as an eastern border to the Roman Empire. And so we have this region that is very Greek. The people are Greek. The things are Greek. It's Greek culture, very Hellenistic. Um, and not a lot of Jews live here, um, much less travel here. So why is Jesus traveling here? It's a pretty natural question. Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. Um, first, Jesus and the disciples needed a break from everything that had been going on. They needed a reprieve. Um, you see, the attention that they had been receiving in Galilee and their normal stomping grounds had kind of reached fever pitch. So we have the Pharisees who have been seeking out Jesus for a while to destroy him. Uh, recently, his ministry had come under um, extra scrutiny from Herod, the governor of Galilee. And also, the crowds have just been getting massive. And they're getting pretty riled up, to say the least. And so in the midst of all this, the disciples really had hardly any time to eat, we see in, in Mark 6. And so this trip outside of kind of the normal Jewish areas provided a much-needed retreat from all the attention in Galilee. Um, but though, as we saw even last week, even here, he, he can't be hidden. Secondly, and this is more important, the disciples still needed to be taught. Uh, they don't get it yet. We see this in chapter 6, that after the feeding of the 5,000, they, they're still not getting it. They aren't understanding the true identity, the true mission, the true purpose of their teacher. And so this trip has kind of been an opportunity for Jesus to get some one-on-one -on -one time to, to privately teach his disciples um, uninterrupted by the pressures in Galilee. And so each of the scenes that Mark kind of shows us along the way, so we saw one last week and this week, has uh, kind of been a window into the lessons that Jesus is teaching his disciples, expanding their understanding of who he is, much like filling in the pieces of a puzzle. 
And so we, as the reader and Mark's audience, is invited to um, broaden our own understandings at the same time of who Jesus is. Now, this is not the first time Jesus and the disciples have been in this region, in, in the Decapolis. Uh, you might recall in chapter 5, that's where we encounter Jesus healing the man suffering under the legion of demons. Okay? He healed him, and he sent him off to proclaim and tell people of God's mercy what God had done for him. Well, his uh, evangelism appears to have paid off a little bit. Uh, seems to have had an effect because now, instead of being begged to leave the area, he's being begged to come. He's being begged to come and lay his hand on people and heal them. I mean, just, just think about this for a moment. This is a, a Greek area with Greek people begging a Jewish man to come and heal their sick and their hurting. Now, Matthew tells us that we're, there were a ton of people here. This isn't just the only man that Jesus healed in this area. He was healing the lame, the blind, everyone. But Mark chooses to highlight this man, this one person, and for a reason, and we'll see that in a moment. And so this is actually where we meet our man in the miracle. So verse 32, we, we meet this man. It reads that they brought to, man, or to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, which literally means thick-tongued. And they begged him to lay his hand on him to heal him. And we're not told how this man came to be in this condition, though most people think that uh, he was um, deaf from birth and that due to an accident a little later in life, he, he probably went mute. Um, so people just can't understand him. The, the point is he can't hear and he can't talk. And in a Hellenized society that um, there was a, placed a large uh, value on uh, language and learning and that also depended a great deal on verbal communication, this guy had effectively been handed the permanent short straw for life. Um, but Mark chooses to highlight this encounter with Jesus for a reason, and it's because it paints a specific picture of who Jesus is, of his mission and his identity. And this actually takes us back to the Old Testament. So the first 39 books of the, Old Test or of the Bible, the Old Testament, were written in Hebrew originally. But Mark's writing to people in Rome, and so his Roman audience is... Um, not Jewish audience, would have likely been more familiar with the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. Now, the word used here to describe this man's uh, speech impediment or his muteness is, is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's, it's only here and one other place in the Septuagint, in, in Isaiah 35. Now, as you'll see in a moment, this connection would be clear regardless, but Mark's making a point. He's saying, don't miss this. He's basically putting a road sign back to Isaiah 35 as this is what I want you to focus on, okay? So who, those who are not familiar with Isaiah, it's a book absolutely rich with prophecy about God's coming salvation. Um, actually, the, the New Testament writers refer to, back to it very frequently, and Jesus himself quotes it multiple times saying he is the one who has come to fulfill these things. And uh, in the verses leading up to, in the chapters leading up to chapter 35, we read of God's judgment. We read of God's um, wrath poured out on nations for sin and for their rebellion. But in 35, we read these really amazing words. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsting grounds springs of water. 
In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. This is in stark contrast to the chapters leading up to this that talk of sin and rebellion, and here there is life and a way of holiness. You see, Isaiah says that when God comes to save his people and open this way of holiness, this way of salvation, the deaf will hear and the mute will sing. A picture of the restoration God is working in the world to repeal the effects of sin and brokenness. You see, Mark wants us to see that Jesus healing this man demonstrates that he is the Savior, Son of God. Prophesied by Isaiah to come and open the way of salvation for the whole world like cool springs to a dry desert. He's not simply saying Jesus has come to make things better, but to bring life itself to a dry and broken world. So let's pick back up and see how Jesus heals this man in verses 33 and 34. So he takes him aside from the crowd privately. He puts his fingers into his ear and after spitting, touches his tongue. He looks up to heaven and he sighs. You might say, what's happening and why is there spit? It's kind of, kind of strange. Um, well, remember, this man's whole world is what he can see and what he can feel. And so how Jesus heals this man in how he heals him, we see this beautiful picture of, of Jesus' heart for people. Jesus is not a showman, and the people are not his props. He's come to heal and restore. So you see, without words, Jesus is saying, I know what's wrong. I know you can't hear, and I know you can't talk. And now the spit might seem weird, but actually in this day and age, it was considered a valid treatment for various issues and remedies. It was, it was a valid healing treatment in some ways. So he's not just saying, I know what's wrong, but he's communicating his intent. I'm going to heal you. From, that is, from my body, healing will come to you. So then he looks up to heaven, a clear sign that what he's about to do is by the very hand of God. And then he sighs. This word, sighs, isn't just out of frustration. This is a, a, a word that communicates a lot of emotion. You see, it, it refers to an inward and an audible groaning of the soul. Um, Paul actually uses the same word in Romans when he talks about creation groaning for the revealing of the sons of God, and when he talks about the Spirit praying when we don't know how to. So this is the, the groan, the inward prayer of the one who is intimately acquainted with the sin and brokenness in our world. You see, surely this man had, had sighed many times himself out of frustration, and here Jesus is empathizing with his brokenness. And lastly, and this is, the, this is the cool part, Jesus issues forth just a single command. He looks at him and he says, Ephatha, that is, be open. Now, Mark preserves for us the command in the original Aramaic, which was kind of the, the common man's language of this time. Um, now, this word ephatha is a transliterated word. So what that means is it's a word from one language whose sound is recreated and replicated in another. So that's why we can read it in English and it sounds the same. And so we saw Mark do something pretty similar just a few chapters ago when he uh, was writing about the healing of Jairus' daughter, raising her from the dead. You see, there he kept the original command because to translate it would have lost the double meaning. You see, when, when Jesus said to you, I say to you, little girl, I say to you, little lamb, 
arise. There was a tenderness that would have been lost in the translation. And here we see something rather similar. You see, the word ephatha is much simpler. It's pretty simple to read on the lips for someone who can't hear. And so, though he can't hear the command physically, he can know what the words his healer is saying because he can read it on his lips. You see, by all these things, we can see how much Jesus is doing to care for this man and help him understand what's going on. Even at the same time, the act he is performing is demonstrating that he is the Son of God. You see, though Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father, he is also Jesus, the high priest, who is intimately acquainted with our weaknesses. Though he is great, he is approachable. Jesus is wonderful, and he is near to those who are hurting. We can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and trust that it is enough because of who Jesus is. And I think, how encouraging would this have been to Mark's original audience? You know, Romans who are living um, elsewhere, and they're reading about how their Savior came and was as compassionate and tender with this Greek man of little standing as with a, a Jewish synagogue ruler's daughter. Jesus shows no favoritism here. He's compassionate for all people. You see, how he heals reveals his heart, but it's, it's not the spit, it's not the touch that actually reveals his true identity. See, Jesus never heals in the same way twice. Yet there is one single commonality to every miracle that he does perform. To the leper, he said, be clean. To the little girl, he said, arise. And to this man, he says, be open. And guess what? It was. The disciples weren't going to learn how much more there was to the teacher simply because he put his spit on someone else's tongue. They were going to learn how great their teacher was and how much more there was to Jesus because when he spoke a command, things happened. Things responded. You see, this man, he says, be open, and his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Do you see what a miracle this is? Like waters gushing forth in a desert, sound is rushing into his ears like never before. Even the sound of his own voice, which is speaking plainly. This is an absolute miracle, and he is completely healed. By this miracle, Jesus shows us his true nature. See, he is divine. He is the Son of God who came to open the way of salvation, to open the very well of eternal life. And how he heals this man shows us just what his heart is, that he is a compassionate man, that he has he is come to open the way of salvation not just for some people but for all people. This is who Jesus is. So I have to ask you, do you know this Jesus? Do you have a right understanding of his true nature? Do you have a right understanding of his true heart? You see, or, or is your view limited? Do you, do you think less of Jesus than he actually is? You see, whether or not you acknowledge it, Jesus is Lord of all creation. And whether or not you think you need him, the way of salvation is through no one else. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the only life. is found nowhere else. You need Jesus. And apart from him, there is no hope that sustains. In Christian, we see Jesus' is compassionate heart here. Do you love people like Jesus? Do you show favoritism? Or do you, like Jesus, 
open yourself to all people. I was convicted of this even as I was reading and preparing this passage. Can your coworkers, your family, your friends, can everyone see through you that the love of God could reach even to them? Or is there a wall? See, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus' heart, his desire is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth of who he is, to repent of their sin and believe that life is found in him. Do you know this, Jesus? So we, we read this, and then 36 were presented with, with something of a surprising twist. It says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. You can, you can almost picture the wave of confusion passing over this crowd. What do you mean tell no one? I mean, think about this man too. Jesus literally just healed him from not being able to speak, and the first words he hears his healer say is, don't talk. That's, um, it seems counterintuitive in many ways. But this is actually not the first time Jesus has done this. We, we see this repeatedly throughout Mark's gospel. In, in, in chapter 1, with when he healed the leper, he said, don't tell anyone. And he said the same thing to Jairus and his family when he raised his daughter from the dead. He says, don't tell anyone about this. And you see, uh, this is a very common theme through Mark's gospel, and it's referred to as the messianic secret that God, that Jesus is both powerful and mysterious. And you might say, well, what is the purpose? Why is he healing people then? If, if he doesn't want people to know about it, why heal? Wouldn't just not healing anyone solve all of this anyway? No. First of all, Jesus isn't cold. He is compassionate. He has come not to ignore the brokenness of the world, but to restore the brokenness of the world. And secondly, and this is more importantly, it's through the miracles we see who Jesus is. It's through the miracles we see exactly who Jesus is. If he came, we said already that they point to a greater reality, what is behind them, the secret or the unknown miracle that you can't see. Jesus is the Son of God, and it's through the miracles, the things that he can do that no one else can do that show us that the words he speaks are unlike any other words. So all that said, let me give you three reasons why Jesus gives this charge to the people. He issues this charge. First, to allow for more time with his disciples. We've already talked about how this trip is, is in many ways for the benefit of his disciples. It's for their rest and for their training. And Jesus is training them to one day carry the full gospel, the message of salvation, of who Jesus is to the whole world. But they don't get it yet. And so he needs more time with his disciples. As much time as he can get uninterrupted by the crowds. You see, in chapter 1, when the leper didn't listen and went and told everyone, the crowds were so overwhelming, Jesus couldn't enter into a town. And even just recently, we saw that the, the disciples didn't have time to eat because there were so many people coming. See, we're in the final year of Jesus' ministry, just a few months away it is the last trip to Jerusalem. And Jesus needs time to explain things, teach his disciples. Secondly, he issues this charge to prevent people from following him for the wrong reasons. You see, the large crowds have been following Jesus, not primarily because they know who he is, but because they know what he can give. You see, they, they've been seeking him because they've heard that this man can work miracles. 
See, in, in John, um, we, we read a uh, similar account of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, a parallel account, and the people there, after they had been fed, the remainder of the crowd that still remained after the feeding, literally ran around the Sea of Galilee to meet Jesus when he got out of the boat. And you think, well, that's good, they're, they're following Jesus, but Jesus rebuked them, and he said this, he rebuked them for not seeking him for the right reasons, but because they had had their fill of bread because they wanted more. They wanted more miracles, more bread, but Jesus said, it's not about the bread, it's about me. Don't seek after the food that perishes or the miracles that heal the body bound for death. Rather seek the food that endures for eternal life. He said, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And then this leads us actually to the third reason why Jesus issues this command, and it's most important to highlight what his ministry is about. You see, it, the miracles are not the crown of Jesus' ministry. Calvary is the crown of his ministry. So if you set up a road sign, or if you go out on a road trip and you're, you're visiting the Grand Canyon, you, you don't stop at the first sign. You see that says Grand Canyon 200 miles this way and say, oh, I guess we're here. That would miss the whole point of the sign. <laughs> The, the Grand Canyon is the destination. And the sign, while it might fill you with some eager anticipation of what is to come, will by no means um, bring the same amount of joy and awe and amazement as standing on the edge of the canyon and being unable to see what's on the other side and where it ends. All of the miracles Jesus performed were like road signs, pointing to the culmination of his ministry on earth, the cross and the empty tomb. These things, the cross and the empty tomb, make all else pale in comparison when you see truly what they have done. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So you can, you can understand this, this charge of Jesus, this saying, don't tell anyone, is really saying, not yet. You see, he knows how easily he can be misinterpreted or sought after for the wrong reasons, and he also knows that a partial gospel that doesn't include the cross or doesn't include the, the empty tomb is really no gospel at all and not good news. So let me ask you this question. And you may not have asked this for, to yourself for a while, or maybe you've, you've never asked. Why are you following Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of the things he gives, the things he provides, or is it because of who he is? Are you frustrated when life doesn't go your way and then blame God and say, God, look at all the things I'm doing. You don't understand. And God's saying, you don't understand. Look at me. I'm what it's about. I am the bread of life. It's not about the stuff. It's about me. Is your prayer always, God, I, I need X, Y, Z? Or is it, God, I need you. I need you. If you were following Jesus simply for the things he gives, you are missing the complete point. Jesus is the miracle. Furthermore, Jesus' command here has been rendered obsolete by the cross and by the empty tomb. You see, this crowd didn't have a full picture of what was going on, so the charge to them was, don't tell anyone. But to us who know how the story ends, we have the complete picture. The charge is this, go and tell Go and tell them about these things. Go and tell them of this message. Theirs could only heal the body. Ours can heal the soul. 
Go and tell them of the Son of God that came and became a man. He lived among us. Go and tell them how he lived full of grace and full of truth. Go and tell them how he willingly went to the cross and suffered so that we might live and taste life. Go and tell them about this. This is amazing. Tell them of the empty tomb and of the open invitation to come and see. See, God is making all things new in Christ. Unlike, the God, unlike this crowd, our gospel is complete and it can heal the soul. Yet where we so often hesitate to share what we know about Christ and, and, and these truths, this crowd could, could actually not be contained. So we see that at the end of verse 36. Look with me. And he charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Why? Well, because it's amazing. I mean, can you blame them? This is an absolute amazing thing. We can often get desensitized to what we're reading in the Bible just out of familiarity and such, but I urge you to look again at what we just read with fresh eyes as if you've never read it before. Jesus just commanded this man's ears to be open and his tongue to release. And guess what? It did. This is not normal. Deaf people don't just stop being deaf. This is not normal. And, and the crowd, they just could not comprehend it. They were astonished beyond measure. It could not be measured how amazed they were. And they were saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Mark leaves us with this statement in verse 37. What the people were saying, that he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He leaves us with this statement, and this statement in of itself is an amazing statement. So while they're understanding the crowd, they don't have a complete picture. They don't know how the story ends. So though their understanding is limited and not complete, and they probably don't get the Old Testament reference from Isaiah, their honest confession is a testimony that Isaiah's words are being fulfilled. You see, in Genesis 1, we see that God speaks a command and creation is born. Then at the end of this chapter we read, or sorry, and then at the end of Genesis when we read that God saw everything he had made and behold, it was all very good. Jesus here speaks a command and creation responds. It's restored. And people who, who can see it say, everything he has done, he has done very well. All, he has done all things well. Everything Jesus does, he does well. This man's hearing wasn't mostly restored, it was completely restored. It wasn't just that he could kind of start mumbling, he could speak clearly, unlike ever before. Everything Jesus does is beautifully thorough, commandingly compassionate, with authority and grace. It is all very good. Everything Jesus does, he does well. See, Isaiah spoke of the deaf hearing, and of the mute singing in God's coming day of salvation because they demonstrate the nature of God's salvation, that of restoration, that he is restoring what has been broken and cursed by sin. And, though this, and through this miracle, we see that Jesus is the one coming to bring that restoration. Do you see it? In the course of this crowd, they sing of this reality even though they don't know it. He is the Son of God who has opened the way of salvation for all people. Now, I, I don't know why all of you are here, 
and I don't know what all of you think of Jesus. Some of you might be like Jefferson and think he's a great man, he had some good morals I can learn from, these are all good things. Um, But I'm here to tell you that wisdom will not be enough to save you from your sin. Some of you may say that you trust in Jesus and yet have a very small view of who he is. You have a small understanding of what his purpose in coming to earth was. You have a small understanding of of the reality of, of his nature and heart. Whether your life reflects it or not, Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of our devotion and worship. He is the King of heaven and earth who speaks and creation responds. And it's before his judgment throne that we will all be brought before to give an account. So if you were here today, you've heard this truth. You know the truth. And I'm asking you to live like people who know the truth. You can't ignore this. Some of you know this truth. Some of you know who Christ is. But yet you, you say, I struggle to feel the warmth of his compassion. I'm telling you to look at the cross. Look at the cross. On the cross, we see the overlap of Jesus' love. We see the overlap of his heart and his power on full display. You see, only Jesus, only Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, could give his life as a ransom for many and it be enough. Only Jesus would go there voluntarily so that he could say, it is finished for all people and for sinners. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still in sin, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has opened the way of salvation for all people by offering himself as the payment. See, if you don't know this Jesus, I invite you to seek him out. Fall on your knees. Seek him. He will not long remain hidden, I promise you. Seek him out. He is worth all of it. So we started on this in Isaiah 35. We saw how Jesus is fulfilling what Isaiah is writing about in chapter 35. And so I wanted to leave you on this. At the end of 35, we read of the hope, the true hope, the lasting hope, the fulfilling hope that will not put us to shame, that belongs to those who trust in Christ and the salvation that he has brought. We read these amazing words. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Do you see it? Christ has come to put an end to the sighing and the brokenness caused by sin so that we might walk in newness of life in the way of holiness in this life and forevermore. Don't miss it. Don't miss who Jesus is. Don't let the things get in the way. Don't seek him for what he can offer. Seek him for who he is. And don't miss this. So I'll leave you on this. Do you know who Jesus is? Okay, let's pray.